1: And thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate
0: One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking with an environmentalist and an oil industry veteran about the true cost of markets based on the premise of Grow Now, Clean Up Later. That economic model fails to capture the positive benefits delivered by nature, such as clean air and water. Corporate accounting systems also don't include the societal costs of production and consumption, such as floods and droughts made worse by your car and mine. Over the next hour, we'll hear how companies including McDonald's, Puma, Walmart, Unilever, and others are changing the way they measure success and operate in competitive markets. Along the way, we'll include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Here to discuss the greener shades of capitalism, we're pleased to have with us two guests – Amy Larkin is author of Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. She's former director of Greenpeace Solutions, a group uh, project at the environmental group that works with corporations. John Hoffmeister is CEO of Citizens for Affordable Energy. He's former president of Shell Oil Company, a subsidiary of Royal Dutch Shell, the world's largest corporation by revenues. He's the author of Why We Hate Oil Companies, Straight Talk from an Energy Insider. Please welcome them to Climate One. Amy and John, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Amy Larkin, tell us about the concept of environmental debt, how things are not being fully measured in today's practice of capitalism.
1: Well, right now, the laws of nature and the rules of business are in a collision course. We all know about the two sides of the financial ledger, profit and loss. But there's also cause and effect. Every financial transaction has an environmental impact, and the Environment is embedded in every financial transaction. Every transaction. And the financial crisis and the environmental crisis are inextricably connected. And until we address both of them together, we're in big trouble. Environmental debt is the cost of doing business where you cause someone else to pay for your mess. And your company or your consumption does not cover the cost. Somebody else does. So shall I give an example? Sure. Okay. Do you remember the floods in Thailand in 2011? The country was devastated. And in those floods, there was a terrible typhoon, and it may be or may not have been exacerbated by climate change. But it became a terrible flood. Came a catastrophic flood from a terrible flood because of deforestation, <laughs> most of which happened 15 and 20 years before 2011. So 20 years ago, 20 years before 2011, actions of a variety of logging companies and the Thai government caused catastrophic flooding 20 years later. So what did that have as a financial effect? Well, for the people of Thailand, it was terrible. But what about the factories that produce parts for Toyota and Honda? Well, tens of thousands of workers lost their jobs in Kentucky, Singapore, and the Philippines. And Toyota lost 3% of its annual output because of logging that happened 20 years before. So what should those logs have cost? As a purchaser of a Toyota car, you didn't pay for them? as a purchaser of the wood. You know, all along the chain, no one paid for those costs until the catastrophe hit. Those are the kinds of rules of business that have to change. John Hoffmeister, do the rules of business need to change?
3: You can either change the rules or you can get people to voluntarily operate under their own rules, which recognize exactly what Amy's talking about. So 1997 was a big year in my former company when we chose to go a different path than the industry and to put a cost of carbon, begin to put a cost of carbon in every project, every capital project that we looked at. And whether it was Athabasca oil sands, whether it was Sakhalin liquefied natural gas, whether it was Getter liquefied or gas to liquids, whether it was platforms in the Gulf of Mexico, each had to not only Describe the capital cost of the project itself, but the cost of carbon that was associated with that project over time. And the mitigation of how that carbon impact, putting a price on carbon, would affect operations down the road or financials down the road, we we voluntarily imposed upon ourselves a mechanism to measure that. And in some cases, we didn't approve projects. In some cases, we did with mitigation, extra mitigation. But the reality is shell shares, the share price, have suffered. In the because competition hasn't gone that way. And so the company was willing to take a share price hit. And if you check the share history over the last 10 years, you'll see that shell shares have basically underperformed the market in which it competes because we – my former company absorbs those costs as part of doing business.
0: Well, Marvin Odom, the current president of Shell Oil was here recently and we talked about this shadow price. He called it funny money. They don't really charge themselves that $45 or $40 a, a ton of carbon pollution, but they say if there's a price on carbon, this is the way this will pencil right. out. So they're preparing for the future, but is it fair to say really that the stock price, people on Wall Street don't really aren't looking at that shadow price. They're looking at current revenues in the current quarter,
3: right? Uh, I can't speak for the whole of Wall Street, but it has had an unsettling effect that this company, Royal Dutch Shell, would take into account the the future uh, issues of environmental (coughs) impact as part of the way it does business. There's a price
0: for doing the right thing. Amy Larkin, that's got to be a deterrent to other companies doing something like this.
1: Well, you know, as John is talking, I'm thinking of what Puma did last year, uh, many of you probably know, Puma created the first ever environmental profit and loss statement. And they worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers and TrueCost to determine it's if It's a consulting
0: they, firm, TrueCost Yeah, TrueCost
1: is a boutique consulting firm uh, to determine what would have happened if they actually paid for their environmental degradation in 2010 or 11. I'm not sure which – And they determined that it would cost them $190 million if they had to pay for the environmental impact they were causing, which was 72% of their annual profit. Now, they didn't pay for that, but they were courageous enough to say to the world, this is the real cost of doing business, which was an astonishing thing. And instead of backing off from that, they are now – revisiting it and taking lessons learned, making it better refining the process and in fact their parent company PPR which owns Yves Saint Laurent and Gucci and Stella McCartney are doing an environmental profit and loss statement for all of the brands and several other multinationals are also coming forward and stating we cause environmental damage and we want to I mean the inferred idea is that we don't want to continue to do this, but as John said, in the current rules of business, if we don't do it, the biggest polluter will make the biggest profit. So why did Puma do that? Puma did that because Jochen Zeitz, the CEO, and I'm sure others, felt compelled to state the amount of environmental impact the company was causing and wanted to change the rules so that the entire sportswear industry, all of their competitors, will have to come forward and do that. And in fact, they are. Several other of Puma's biggest competitors are in fact putting forth, they are in the process of creating environmental profits and loss statements as well. And in addition, Coopers competitors are also doing similar projects. So KPMG has a report that they put out in 2011 that showed that the 3,000 largest global companies cause $2.15 trillion of environmental damage every year. So for KPMG and Price Waterhouse to do these kinds of studies, they are antagonizing all of, not all, but many of their clients. This is not an easy thing for them to do. This is saying to their clients, hello, we're counting. We're counting your environmental degradation costs. That's a big, courageous act sort of all the way around. And so that's one of the places where I'm encouraged that we have the chance to change the rules of business because there are a few leadership corporations ready to start changing the metrics and the rules of business.
0: We'll get to a couple of those. John Hoffmeister, is this a threat or an opportunity to change the rules?
3: Well, I think it's an opportunity. I don't see it as a threat at all. But here here are two systems changes that may sound as boring as watching paint dry, but this is what would have to change. There's an organization called FASB, the uh, Financial Accounting Standards Board. FASB writes the rules for accounting, and you'd rather watch your fingernails grow than go to a meeting of FASB board. It's B-O-R-E-D is what most people feel when they listen to FASB, but it is the arcane and the detailed accounting rules Mm -hmm. which determine what? The profitability of firms. That's one side of the system. There's another side of the system. It's spelled I R S. What does IRS do? Collect taxes on the profits. And and so the relationship between the IRS and the expectation of revenue to the government and the accounting rules, which yield ultimately the profitability of a firm, are very much tied into this. So how do you make opportunity in all of this? Well, you start, and the Obama administration is attempting to do this, Mm -hmm ever so carefully, Mm -hmm. before they get stepped on very hard by some members of Congress, they're trying to create the notion of social cost. Mm -hmm. What is social cost? That's going to be a hard conversation to have at a political level because social cost built into accounting rules impacting corporate profitability could be the game changer that's warranted or needed in the world of tomorrow if we're going to count what Amy talks about as environmental debt. I'm not opposed to that because you can, if you're running a company, get ahead of it. And getting ahead of it is opportunity if you know where it's going. One of the problems, though, with our political system and process, who knows where it's going? (laughs) Nowhere. We all know it's going nowhere.
0: Amy Larkin, let's talk about one of the other uh, examples in your book. You write about McDonald's. Uh, I'd like to talk about Bob, is it Langert, from McDonald's Langert, yeah. and the interaction there and how they were able to change some of their competitors and some of the companies they did business with with respect to
1: the Amazon. So as uh, Greenpeace targeted McDonald's uh, in 2006 – Because McDonald's was one, it was a large buyer of soybeans from the Amazon. And this, the Amazon is being newly deforested every day, as you all know. But largely for soybeans to build, to feed cows, chickens that come to table cheaply across the world. And, um, Greenpeace was very aware of the problem and couldn't, in fact, attack the soybean companies because nobody ever heard of them. But McDonald's was a very easy or smart target. I shouldn't say it was both maybe easy and smart target. It was
0: big, yes. It's
1: a big brand, and they will do a lot to protect their brand. So Greenpeace ran some very effective, noisy campaigns against McDonald's regarding uh, its purchasing of soy from newly deforested lands in the Amazon. And Bob Langert was the voice, vice president at McDonald's, and instead of saying, well, I'm sure what he said privately might have involved, uh, get out of here. But publicly he said, actually, um, we have a policy that says we will not buy soybeans from newly deforested land in the Amazon, and we have been assured that in fact, the soybeans we're buying are not from those lands. Well, Greenpeace, of course, has airships and satellites and unbelievable people on the ground and showed them otherwise. And um, McDonald's, rather than saying, get out of here, said, oh, this is a real problem. And Bob Langert stood up and um, convinced his colleagues who really didn't want to work with Greenpeace. I mean, really did not. Uh, And said, you know, actually, they're right, and we can do something about it. And over a course of three weeks, um, Greenpeace leadership and McDonald's leadership met three times in airport conference rooms around the world and agreed to work together, brought in all of the major soy traders, most of the other fast food companies, and several retailers and said, we will not buy soy from newly deforested lands in the Amazon. And in fact, there is now a moratorium on that. Uh, And, you know, hats off to Bob Langard at McDonald's for working with people he didn't want to. And uh, hats off to Greenpeace for working with a multinational corporation that it has great differences with and continues to have great differences with. And they were able together to achieve something extraordinary, which is a moratorium on something that should be stopped.
0: And they influenced Cargill, ADM, yeah. some of the biggest agricultural firms in the, in the world.
1: Right. All, of, all of the other, all the major companies. And it has been a big, long process. It remains in, in effect. It's greatly difficult to implement, and um, I, of course, hope that the next stop for McDonald's is that they stop selling burgers for a buck and we stop asking for them. That's the next step. <laughs> um,
0: well, this goes naturally uh, from McDonald's, is Coca-Cola. Tell us, and we'll get Johnny here after this, uh, Coca-Cola had quite a story with regard to refrigerant. So tell us how that unfolded and, and the leadership involved there.
1: So in 2000, uh, Coca-Cola was a sponsor of the, of the Sydney Olympics, and, you know, it's a green Olympics, and it's a green Olympics, and Greenpeace pointed out, well, it's not so green because uh, the refrigeration in all of the Olympic villages used HFCs, which are uh, super greenhouse gas, thousands of times more powerful than CO2. And today, uh, HFCs are actually the chemical du jour, in fact, in terms of climate change, there is global action against it. But in 2000, nobody ever heard of it. Uh, and it was growing to become the problem it is today. And uh, Greenpeace targeted Coke, and Coke, to its credit again, came to the table with Greenpeace and remained there for 10 years until in 2009 – Coca-Cola was the first company to commit to eliminate HFCs from all its new equipment starting in 2013, which they are keeping to. And then the executive director of Greenpeace International said to the CEO of Coca-Cola, Mukhtar, do you think you could bring more companies with you? And um, I'm sure he didn't quite say it that way. Uh, He's a very persuasive fellow, and... um, Mukhtar Kent, the CEO of Coca-Cola, at the time was becoming the, CEO, the the co-chair of the Consumer Goods Forum. The Consumer Goods Forum is 400 of the world's largest retail brands. So it's Coke, Pepsi, Unilever, which had already been working with Greenpeace for many years, but General Foods, and Costco, Walmart, CalFour, Global retailers. They have, I think, three and a half trillion dollars of revenue. The big guys. And Mukhtar Kent, uh, and the Koch people sort of set me up to go give the keynote speech to this group to say, eliminate HFCs from all equipment across, across the sector. And, um, we went to this meeting, it was in October 2010, and um, honestly, we never thought this would pass. You know, I was sure I was like lamb to the slaughter when I was going in to make this request. But in fact, um, I put forth this proposition. And at the end of the day, uh, of a very intense day, the meeting leader said to, pointed to a VP of a huge retailer, You're going to do this, right? And you could see his face like, what? And uh, before he answered, he looked at his biggest competitor, and he said, you're going to do this? And she said, and he said it. At which point I realized, number one, anything's possible, and number two, everything is high school. And in fact, (laughs) the consumer, so then... The board of the Consumer Goods Forum had to approve it. This is 50 CEOs of some of the world's largest corporations. I figured that's a six-month process. No, Mukhtar Kent wanted to who, wanted to announce it from the Cancun talks one month later, and he did. The board approved it. Um, Cancun
0: climate talks. Yes, after, Cancun yeah. climate mm-hmm.
1: talks, and in fact. Uh, the Consumer Goods Forum companies are working rapidly with great excitement, worry, diligence, money, fear, trepidation, and talent and commitment to, in fact, implement this resolution. So this is how, uh, again, civil society group and big corporations can work to influence things And they are doing this ahead of regulation. The EU is about to vote on phasing down HFCs. The United States and China just made an agreement to work together to phase down HFCs. There's about 60 countries that have now agreed it's a major climate problem. But these companies did this ahead of that. And, uh, you know, for me, it's some of the most inspiring, exciting work I've ever done. It makes me hopeful.
0: John Hoffmeister, you used to be executive at one of the world's largest companies. What's your response to that, those two studies of Coke and and, and McDonald's, responding to the enemy,
3: Greenpeace? Well, I, I agree that there is limitless opportunity to cooperate. The challenge is getting people of like minds to cooperate in industries that are extremely competitive. Uh, I'm glad to hear about the consumer product stories. There's – I I remember my first executive committee meeting at the American Petroleum Institute. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in this room. Am I American Petroleum Institute? You can. They're just really waiting to hear what you're going to (laughs) say next. So I'm at my very first meeting, March 2005, and and there sit the CEOs of eight uh, American oil companies – ready to have – a. I mean, there is an anti-competition lawyer there, so we don't touch on price of oil at all, which would be illegal. But as we settle into the meeting, there's a lot of grumbling around the table among the CEOs saying, you know, if, 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 we can't get any decent policy out of this Congress. We can't get any decent policy out of this White House. And here I am, the newcomer, and I said, I think I have a, reason, a view as to why we don't get any decent policy – I think we are disliked so intensely by everybody that you get the policy you deserve. They looked at me like, who is this guy? And then one of the CEOs said, well, the only degree that matters in this industry anymore is a political science degree to try to get some decent policy. And I raised my hand and said, well, I have a political science degree. (laughs) I'm really making friends in my first meeting at the executive committee. But the API has a rule, an informal understanding, I should say. The informal understanding informal understanding is, unless there is unanimity around the table, there will not be a common agreement. So it is only that which is unanimous. So when it came to the cap-and-trade effort, my company, BP, ConocoPhillips, working behind the scenes for years, on getting a framework for a cap-and-trade system in this country, working with a group called the United States Climate Action Partnership, funded in large measure by the Rockefeller Foundation, which Exxon has no control over anymore. And and so here are 35 companies and environmental groups, including Fred Krupp and and, and others, Francis Beinecke, working on this cap-and-trade. We took it to the American Petroleum Institute to try to get support from our other companies, not members? No. Instead, they proposed a carbon tax. They could support a carbon tax. Well, we know what the position of Congress is on a carbon tax, don't we? We know what the position of the White House is on a carbon tax, don't we? There will be no carbon tax. Is that why they proposed it? I wouldn't be that cynical, but, <laughs> but, I, but I could be. I could be. But cap and trade was real, and it was a... It, it was an effort to get cooperation in the self-interest and in the mutual best interest of everyone involved. That's why you had coal companies, believe it or not. You had electricity producers using coal. You had all these different players in there who could see a better way at the United States Climate Action Partnership. But then we couldn't get the unanimity, couldn't get the the, con, the consensus that obviously the consumer people reached. So it's a hard struggle to get there. Some companies, uh, I believe it was Apple,
0: PGE, left the U.S. Chamber of Commerce because they felt they couldn't agree with some of the principles, the opposition that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce had with respect to cap-and-trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, did Conoco, British Petroleum, Shell ever think about leaving API and forming their own club, which could be more enlightened on issues of climate change?
3: The answer is no. And the reason is if you're not at the table, your voice – Is worthless. You're on the menu. Uh, And and so rather than make enemies, let's, let's work harder on finding common agreement over time. It takes patience. And if the government's not going to lead, I agree with Amy's third point. Government has got to lead one of our principles. Because if government doesn't lead on these things and you're looking for cooperative volunteers, you could look for a long, long time. Amy Larkin. You
0: agreed, yeah. Um, the the idea of let's talk about individuals in uh, in large structures. Amy Larkin. Oftentimes, environmentalists like to vilify big business, big oil, but you meet a lot of people who are well intentioned and earnest and well informed, working in these large corporations who are trying to do the best they can within the constraints. And very few of them stand up and risk their job or really speak truth to power.
1: Well, I think that. One of the stories I tell in my book is about PepsiCo. PepsiCo built a state-of-the-art factory for its subsidiary, Frito-Lay, in Arizona. And it was near net zero energy waste in water. And they really, they spent a large amount of money on it. And it cracked, they cracked a bunch of codes. And it was truly the most effective factory, as I understand it, in the world. And the engineer who led this for PepsiCo was sort of boasting. Not boasting. He was telling me about it. And um, I said, so you're going to deploy this in all your factories globally now. You've cracked all these codes. He said, and he's a conservative Texan. He said, well, you know, if energy costs what it should cost, we would do everything. If waste costs what it should cost, we would do everything. If water costs what it should cost, we would do everything. But as it is, it's too expensive to deploy all of these changes because the quarterly results will not look good. And the rest of our, our whole senior management will be threatened because we will have spent this money. So I, recommend, I, I propose in my book three principles, which I call the Nature Means Business Framework. And they are the first one, pollution can no longer be free. Number two, all accounting and business decisions have to incorporate the long term. And number three, government has a vital role to incentivize and help finance new technologies as they have for hundreds of years.
0: John Hoffmeister, we have an economic climate where companies are recorded, (coughs) rewarded and measured quarterly. Traders think about, you know, nanoseconds. A lot of the trading on Wall Street is, is, you know, programmed high-speed trading. Uh, Amy just talked about long-term, but that's not where our economic system is.
3: No, it's not. And it is really part of the problem. A serious part of the problem. So the profitability reporting on a quarterly basis, Some companies, European companies in particular, uh, don't do that. They report annually. That's it.
0: Unilever recently said they're not going to do quarterly earnings statements guidance, which was... And,
3: And so there are companies that are beginning to move in that direction, because what's the point? If you, if you only think about the short term, and, and in the energy industry in particular, short term is 10 years. That's the definition of short term. Medium term is 10 to 25. Long term is uh, 25 to 50 years. That's how you plan the capital spending in an energy company. So quarter to quarter, my former company, we never really worried about quarterly reports. We did them, but we didn't pay any attention to the analysts who were critical on a quarterly basis. Annual, yeah, we'd paid attention on an annual basis. We'd have an annual analyst meeting. You want to hear their points of view. Quarterly didn't matter. Quarterly is the blink of an eye. Uh, and, And so I think, however... There's one other point I want to make on this. So you have the, you can, the, the, the Wall Street system that is, uh, really harmful. The second thing that's really harmful, frankly, we can get into this now or later. Money in politics. Money in politics means, that your dollars count, more than your vote. And how did we ever let ourselves in a democracy get to the point where dollars, mean more than votes? But isn't that where we are? And as long as the American citizens tolerate this form of legalized corruption, I don't see any way to get consensus built around the right things, but rather those things which get paid for. Amy Larkin?
1: I completely agree with you, John. And the other piece is that we do not connect the real cost of what we consume with its real cost in the world. So... If I eat a hamburger or buy an iPod or anything I buy, which is very cheap. Do you buy gas? I don't have a car. I live in New York. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, I don't. Um, And and in the United States, our gas is cheaper than most any country in the world, and it does not in any way reflect the real cost of gasoline. And the same for when you buy a, turn on the lights and you pay for a kilowatt hour of energy made from coal, you're paying about 8 cents a kilowatt hour, but in fact its real cost is closer to 20 to 25 cents a kilowatt hour. And that's the cost of its mining, its the water degradation, you know, there's a whole stream of costs associated. With coal, We do not pay for our energy or anything in its true cost. And so our choice is really do I want to pay for good renewable energy now or do I want to pay for Hurricane Sandy again and again and again and again? Do I want to pay for a good transportation system that is 21st century century or do I want to pay for the droughts, the wildfires, again and again and again, with crop insurance, flood insurance. That's the choice. You know, it's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be easy. It's politically suicidal at the moment to state what the, the real situation we're in. But I think the real situation we're in is that our environmental problems are a true crisis And their contribution to our financial crisis is much larger than anybody has a sense of.
0: If you're just joining us on the radio, our guest today at Climate One, Amy Larkin, author of Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. Also John Huffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company. I'm Greg Dalton. John Huffmeister, is there a climate crisis, and is it connected to the financial crisis?
3: I think there is an unawareness crisis on many things, including climate. So the answer to your question is yes. The climate crisis is growing rapidly. I was reading this morning, the U.S. experiences 10 to 15 parts per million particulate matter in normal airflow. China, 700 parts per million particulate matter on a normal day. If that's not a crisis, I don't know what is. That's a crisis. But guess which way the wind blows, folks? you get it first, <laughs> I live in Texas we get it later. But it all it's a it's a world without borders. Mm-hmm. So the climate crisis, I was just in Saudi Arabia last week. They're desperate for water. 98% of the water they consume is desalinated water. Because they would have to go too deep into the earth to get natural well water. There's been drought for tens of thousands of years in their part of the Middle East. And so you know it wasn't always that way, but it is now. You may say, well, that was all pre-industrial, et cetera. Yes, it was. But what do we do in the next 100 years in Saudi Arabia? Which, by the way, pays 18 cents a gallon for gasoline. So the crisis is real. The crisis is now. The problem we hit head-on, folks, from my point of view, which I do write about, we have a political process and a political system and elected officials who think in two-year intervals and can't think past two-year intervals. That is their life. And whether they are a four-year representative like a governor or if they are a six-year representative like a senator, they still think in two-year intervals because the system changes. Now, I as a citizen would not want to give up my two-year accountability uh, assessment of how they're doing. That's Constitutional. But we have to somehow find a mechanism to go beyond the two-year cycle if we're going to deal with the crisis. It's not a crisis obvious every minute, but it's growing. It's getting worse. And, and whether it's, uh, you know, an energy availability crisis, which we could find ourselves in one day if we manage this poorly, or an environmental disaster of land, water, air, which is growing by the year, accumulating in the atmosphere, accumulating in the oceans, accumulating in landfills. Uh, we've got to come to grips with this. And the political process won't allow it, I'm afraid. So
0: – Well, the political process is corrupt and broken, as you said.
3: Money, money buys a lot.
0: Texas has been going through some droughts and some really tough times. Is there an awareness in Texas about connecting these dots with the cattle being – not enough water feed to feed cattle – uh, big energy-producing state. Is there some – what's going on there in Texas?
3: Well, the legislature meets once every two years. This was the year of the legislature to meet, and they meet for 120 days every two years. Uh, I think you have a little different system in the state of California. But, uh, but they're on their second special session this term because the governor wants an abortion bill that you may have read about. So the abortion means, the abortion bill means a whole lot more than the water or the future of Texas under the way in which the legislature has been handled this year. I'm being cynical because I, I, I vote the other way, frankly. And so my votes don't count for much. But, but the issue here is we had this problem in the last century with our monetary system. In, I'm sorry. The, two centuries, the 19th century, and what I care a lot about is democracy, but democracy has to work. It's not working. It's not working on the energy front. It's not working on the environmental front. How do we make it work? And so I'm a very outspoken advocate for independent regulatory authority to take this over. It's time for Congress to kick it upstairs. Congress in 1913 kicked the management of the monetary system of this country upstairs when they wrote the Federal Reserve Act. It's 100 years old this year. I talked to bank CEOs about what they would do without a Fed. They panic. They couldn't imagine running their bank business or any financial business today without the guidance, without the big rules set by the Fed. Do we vote on who's in the Fed? Only indirectly when we vote for president because the president nominates the governors of the Fed. And so we do choose in a democratic manner indirectly. I think the only way to get energy and the environment dealt with fair and square, holistically, systematically, systemically, whatever adjective or adverb you want to put on it, is to change the political system that we have because this system isn't going to do it. John
0: Hoffmeister is a former president of Shell Oil. We're talking about the climate and energy and economic system at Climate One. Uh, let's talk about uh, unburnable carbon, carbon bubble. There's the idea, Amy Larkin writes about it in her book, that if the w- – world burned the assets already on the books of the major energy companies, we would fry the planet. Amy, you want to set this up and let's sure. get reaction. Uh reaction?
1: Right now on the books of the oil companies of the world are approximately $28 trillion of carbon assets. And uh, are, is everyone here familiar with two degrees centigrade as being the this looks like a crowd that probably –
0: It's, it's uh, the level at which the, the world has said is the sort of drawn-aligned
1: – Right, right. And um, this is the – two degrees centigrade is what climate scientists say is the threshold before we go into chaotic climate. So if we are to burn 75 percent, if we're to burn all of the – Carbon Currently on the books of the oil companies, scientific studies show that the world will have approximately a 7-degree Celsius temperature rise. Does Do people get what this means? Kind of?
0: British scientists have said that's incompatible with human civilization as we know.
1: That's correct. So approximately 75% of the oil on the books – of the American Petroleum Institute companies and the global oil companies is basically a stranded asset if we are to keep the temperature within any range that can support civilization as we currently enjoy it. John Hoffmeister, your reaction?
3: Uh, During my visit to Saudi Arabia, we were discussing this, believe it or not, with Sally Aramco staff. And one of them reminded me of a statement of their longtime oil minister, Yamani, Sheikh Yamani, if you remember his name. He's I long retired, know. but Sheikh Yamani was world famous in the setup of OPEC. Sheikh Yamani said, I don't know if he was the first one to say this, but he said it many, many decades ago, the Stone Age did not end for the lack of rocks. <laughs> the oil age will end before we use it all, and the very people in the oil companies uh, are actually working on solutions. I, I'm currently the chair of the Department of Energy's Hydrogen Technology and Fuel Cell Advisory Committee. I started that committee. I've started as part of that committee while I was president of Shell. Hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, where the hydrogen is made from water with renewable energy, is a pollution-free system. Hydrogen fuel cells, unfortunately, were promised too soon. The research wasn't far enough along. It's been discredited. But don't write it off. Don't write it off for a minute because there's work going on as we speak in the auto companies, in the the, the energy companies, to see that a technology that's worth bringing to market comes to market, that has advantages just like today's advantages with liquid fuel. And, And there will be other solutions as well. I think we unfortunately are schizophrenic on coal, where China, with 770 parts per million, is still commissioning a coal plant roughly every week to 10 days. And the energy, the International Energy Agency, a Paris based agency, predicts growth in the consumption of coal over the next 30 years. Therefore, we need an alternative. Natural gas is helpful but it's not a solution. It's half the carbon of oil or coal, but it's not really a solution unto itself. And the $20 billion that was part of the recovery program by the current administration four years ago went mainly to accelerate the use of existing technology. Whereas people like me said, why don't you put it into R&D? Put it into R&D because that's the only way we're going to get past the inefficiency of current solar or wind or biofuel technology. We're not making progress like we could in those three fuel sources because we're not putting the money into R&D other than what private companies are willing to put. Instead, the $20 only about half of it ever got spent, went to today's applications. I don't think that was a good use of money. So, John
0: Hofmeister, you're saying technology can improve things, but you didn't quite answer the carbon bubble. If there's some things that will be assets on the coal and, and energy companies that may be stranded assets that they can't be burned, if they are burned, we're going to fry the planet. Do you accept that premise
3: that HSBC yeah, they won't and be burned. I don't think they'll be burned. You know, there's too much going to on. Share,
0: share prices, some of those companies that are built They'll be flat.
3: They'll be flat to down. But these companies won't go out of business. They'll, they'll, they'll change. They'll, they'll adapt. Into, right. They're, they're, they're full of smart people. There are more PhDs, more scientists in these companies working on – even, even ExxonMobil, a formidable competitor of my former company, is putting a half a billion dollars into biofuel, algae research.
0: While well, the time they were denying climate science, they were looking at ways they could benefit from a warming world by yeah. lo- looking into the Arctic. Uh, we're talking about uh, energy and uh, capitalism at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to invite your participation and put a microphone up here, and if you'd like to join us with a one-part comment or question, please do so. We'll put a microphone here, and the uh, line will start with our producer back there. And while we're setting that up uh, with Jane Ann, if you're here, please go around through that door and join us right here. Uh while we're doing that, I get to sit up here and talk to smart people like uh, Amy and John, and I want to acknowledge the fantastic crew we have here in the room with Laura and Renee and Andre and Vanessa and and uh, everyone. If I go through all the names,'ll I'll mess it up. And also Sarah, uh, who started here as an intern and she's going off to get her MBA in sustainability. This is her last day with us. so thank you, Sarah. and uh, also um, and uh, we have two new staff members today. Uh, Uh, Dee and Alyssa, who are joining us, welcome to them. Let's have our first question. Uh, Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our question.
2: Hello, Greg. Good to be here again, and thank you both for spending your evening or afternoon with us, depending on what time zone. I grew up in Texas myself. Uh, I wanted to ask about major actors or participants in this conversation who either – aren't being paid enough attention or cannot be shamed because of their state. For example, state-owned oil and energy companies that actually have much bigger reserves than some of our private companies and have even less of a long-term incentive given how their capital is captured. And also, given that we talked about the political process and other contexts, our responsibility as voters or as transnational citizens, because there are many cases where even if we clean up and eliminate HFCs from our supply chains, as you mentioned, there are still plenty of other actors who, if they continue using them, just like we talk about carbon with China, if we don't get everybody on board with this, our actions can't make the overwhelming difference. So who do we talk to or how do we affect the people that currently aren't listening to this sort of conversation?
0: John Hoffmeister, sounds like um, Moscow needs, yeah, leading you to Moscow.
3: There is a serious, serious leadership deficit in the political and industrial world of today. And I'm very worried, frankly, except that I have great faith in the grassroots populations of Western democracies to ultimately insist upon better public policy, that will remedy these situations. I really think, and the more I've thought about it, the more I come back to the grassroots. Because the deficit in leadership, uh, I, I was listening to Saudis last week mock U.S. leaders, past and present, for their unwillingness to make hard decisions. They make hard decisions in the kingdom. They may not always agree with the decisions, but they make hard decisions about many different things. You may not agree with the decisions they make, but they do make decisions. And I've come to a point where it's not the form of government that's so important, but the performance of government that matters. And so I'm willing to promote the idea, for example, as I said, an independent regulatory authority to manage energy and the environment in this country because the politicians won't do it. And so... I don't get a lot of popularity from politicians in saying that, but, I, but I, my schedule is full for the rest of the year to talk about that concept all over the country. And so I think that the deficit in leadership is a serious problem. We have to get people involved. They have to be curious, concerned, and get activated in, in the interest that they hold over the future that their children will face.
0: Some of the skepticism about this energy-fed idea is that that much power in the hands of so few people that that would be corrupting and that they could be bought.
3: Yeah, but ultimately Congress would have something to say about that. But they're bought too. Yeah, uh, but if you, <laughs> if you consider the 99-and-a-half-year history, I don't think we've bought the Fed ever. I was just – I'm going to go to Australia and give a talk on this very subject – I just reviewed the Reserve Bank Law of Australia, which was written in 1959, almost, you know, a long time after ours. And in the time in which the Reserve Bank of Australia has been in business, and the Parliament specifically in the law has the authority to disagree and reverse a decision of the Bank, Reserve Bank of Australia, since 1959 they've never used that once. If you get subject matter experts who know what they're talking about, And in my view of an energy and environmental independent regulatory agency, you need a diverse board of 10 to 12 people representing multiple facets of society with 10-year terms uh, that have some longevity. They can see their way through the political issue of the moment. I I think what you get is credibility and integrity because who wants to leave a legacy that they've been bought? And and for a moment, I, I don't think Alan Greenspan was bought. I don't think uh, Ben Bernanke, certainly Paul Volcker, was never bought. So the chairman matters in, in this. They, get, they only serve four-year terms.
0: John Hoffmeister is a former president of Shell Oil Company. Let's have our next question at Climate One.
1: Hi, I'd like to explore this this idea of pollution costs, adding it to petroleum, et etc.
2: Since the damages that climate change will bring at this point are unknown and potentially unlimited, what costs do you ascribe? How much do you add? Is it just a deterrent cost, or do you actually try to make a calculation of what the
1: damage will well, be and then reassess constantly as conditions change? There have, Amy Larkin. There have been several studies on the cost of carbon. Uh, one that I was involved with was with Harvard, where it was about the cost of coal. And they went down the supply chain to the cost of blowing off the mountains, to the cost of – The water degradation to the cost of asthma to the cost of school systems where you have, uh, developmental disabilities to the cost of boom and bust cycles to the cost of fish resorts downstream to the cost of dirty sub basins. It's very, very difficult and time consuming to do it. The National Academy of Sciences tried it. Harvard has tried it. There's a new study now going forth next year, doing it. The Obama administration. A lot of people are trying to do it. There is a sense of an overarching amount, but it is not. It is. It is not an exact science, but it is also not uh, airy fairy. The real costs of cleaning up one sub basin. Can be 400 to 500 million dollars. That's a real mine with real water. The real costs of black lung, etc., in a community—they're real costs of health costs, water costs. So it's not an exact science, but it is also being improved upon because it's being viewed more and more.
0: And one thing we do for sure is we discount future costs, heavily discount well, future
1: costs. Well, I, I think that you don't even get to the cost of climate in everything I just described. So if you want to look at coal as a major contributor to extreme weather, what percentage is almost impossible to say. But the really interesting thing about Hurricane Sandy is that the issue – Hurricane Sandy, as far as I know, is the first extreme weather event that can be categorically tied to climate because the damage was caused not by the hurricane, but by the surge, which was 100% caused by warm water. It is a different, so that's a hundred bill off the top that is caused by X, you know, all of our carbon well, not only carbon, but greenhouse gas emissions. Amy
0: Larkins, author of Environmental Debt. Let's have our next question here at Climate One.
2: Yes. Good evening, Otis. Paul, John, Amy, how do you propose? Since our ballot box vote, political vote doesn't count much. How do you propose we vote with our dollar?
1: Vote what? Vote with, with dollar. our
2: dollars. Uh,
1: Amy Larkin. I think you vote with dollars, but I also think you vote with actions. I would like to propose that every American reduce his and her energy usage by 20%. I would like to propose that we stand up and say, I am willing to pay for what I need to pay for in order to ensure the sanctity of a livable planet. There are things you can do that are how you spend your dollars. But for a lot of people who are poor especially, that ain't so easy. And uh, who am I to say, oh, everybody needs to buy organic until organic food is priced appropriately. So it is not more than food that is grown with huge amount of pesticide. If you want to pay for the cost of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, and price that into the cost of conventional agriculture that uses pesticide, then you begin to put together the laws of nature and the rules of business. Until you do that, how we spend our money doesn't mean anything because what we buy does not embed the cost of environmental degradation. I I just want to say China stated about a month ago that – They value, they said the cost of environmental degradation in their country was three and a half percent of the country's GDP. Three and a half percent. So if that's what they say, what do you think it really was? I don't know, but it wasn't three and a half percent. Mexico said it's eight percent of its GDP. I think that the United States has not made such pronouncement, but it is clear that these costs are being paid by us. We are just not aware of it. So it's hard to vote with your dollars when you are paying. In, you have a bad price signal across almost everything you buy.
3: I, could I just John half Yes. The, I think the fundamental issue is lack of awareness, lack of knowledge, lack of concern. And I think as long as that situation persists and in the stacking up of the priorities of the American voter – Environment comes in pretty far down the list, except for very specialized populations. It comes pretty far down the list across the 50 states in general. As long as that condition prevails, I think what we have here is a group of very concerned, very interested people who are going to get more and more frustrated. I think it will reach a point ultimately where we will need the activism of more than just students. We will need the activism Like we saw in the anti-Vietnam period, like we saw that led to Earth Day, the first Earth Day, like we saw the Tea Party, forget whether you like or dislike what the Tea Party did, they changed Congress in a pretty short order because they got organized and they got grassroots and they made it happen. So somehow, and what I'm doing full-time now is getting out there and, you know, just trying to say exactly what I just said because we've got to get active on this subject or we will kick this can for decades.
0: We've got a few minutes left. Let's get as many questions as we can. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you very much.
2: I wanted to ask you to both comment on the carbon cap and dividend scheme that George Schultz has been pushing, uh, and particularly its appeal as activists go out and try to recruit the rest of the country to, to this cause, because I think um, the, the attractiveness of rebating that money to households and making it clear that there's a win if you don't, you know, if you don't spend it all on your energy sources or your carbon consumption, then then you take it home. Uh, I'd like the comments
0: from the John comments. Hoffmeister, cap and dividend.
3: I, I loved the theory of cap and trade, but it didn't work. I'll take anything that works, and and whether it's cap and dividend or something else that works, I, I still I'm troubled by carbon tax. If carbon tax doesn't reduce carbon. And well, we should clarify,
0: cap and dividend was where the government puts a price on carbon. People might pay more for gasoline, right. but they get a check from the government
3: yes. to offset that. And, and I think British Columbia has such a system that is, seems to be working in British Columbia. I, I think it's going to take a lot of citizen education to get something like what George Schultz is suggesting uh, put into public policy. So it all comes back to me again to what do people know, how do they know it, and will they s- understand what, their, what the benefits are. Because I do believe that anything we can do to change behavior, and, and a voluntary behavior is fine, I agree with that. But but we need some kind of institutional behavior change, statutory behavior change, if we're really going to have an impact.
0: Let's have our next audience question. Welcome.
2: Yes, thank you. Uh, many of us do want our government to lead and to lead effectively. And I think we realize that the only way that that can happen is with meaningful campaign finance reform. However, when you have large corporations
1: and you have wealthy individuals who benefit from the status quo, how are we going to get that campaign finance reform?
3: John Hoffmeister? It's it's going to be a struggle. It's a serious struggle. We haven't done very well in the last 20 years. It's only gotten worse. It takes a billion dollars now to run for president. We, we, to me, that's just a bad joke on ourselves. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think the head of Starbucks tried to lead a boycott right. effort with CEOs and other mm-hmm. uh, high givers, high campaign givers. Not to give political Not to give, not to give political money in 2012 uh, unless the candidates came around to some kind of – but I, I really don't know the answer to that question other than uh, I think the frustration of the voter being listened to. Maybe it'll take a nationwide boycott, but that's not going to be easy to pull off.
0: Larry Lessig is a former Harvard and Stanford law professor out there, has a group called Root Root Strikers, formerly Change Congress. He's trying – his goal, I think, is a constitutional amendment to get to the way that uh, elections are funded. Let's have our next question. Welcome.
2: There's a trend in the coal sector called coal gasification in situ, where the coal is burned in the ground, it's not extracted, not mined, and the heat transfer is converted to electricity on site and put into the grid. Bottom line, the CO2 stays in the ground, never touches the atmosphere. Can coal gasification help solve the climate problem?
3: Burning coal in the ground. John Hoffman. Australia is working on that technology. Uh, there is, as you may know, a coal fire in Pennsylvania that's been burning for about 50 years. What you have to have is a technology that can not just start it, but put it out. <laughs> because you may get more than you ask for. They've had to condemn communities in northern Pennsylvania where the coal fire just kept moving. It's still burning today. So the technology is being pursued. I don't think it's perfected yet. My former company looked at it, and just like, uh, what, what is it called, the uh, the methane in cold water, methane crystals, uh, it has a special name, methane hydrates. Methane hydrates were looked at as well, but what happens if you blow a hole in the ocean that's that are the emerging methane hydrates, how do you close a hole in the ocean? There's enough methane in the ocean that you could create that monstrous hole that you have no no means of shutting it down because it might be 2,000 feet thick. I mean, too deep. And and so you don't start something unless you know how to finish it. And that's where I think coal gasification in situ sits at the moment. Nobody knows quite how to control it. Scary movies in there. Is is that your
1: argument against nuclear power?
3: How to shut it? Well, we know how to shut it down not um, how to
1: get rid of
3: the waste. No, we don't know how to get rid of the waste. You're right. Let's have our question. Yes, welcome.
1: Hi. J.M. Drew here. Um, my question goes back to some of what you said earlier about the environmental P&L. And in my industry, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And looking at solar, like we have a major solar conference happening in San Francisco this week, um, how do we impact that grassroots of these passionate people around solar, alternative energies, whatever they may be, and be able to bring that back to the that environmental PNL? So I need to be able to wrap the whole circle. And what are your take? And how do we get the solar grassroots going and alternative energy? Amy Larkin, I think the solar grassroots is booming. I think the industry is booming, especially out here. I think Palo Alto just made a deal, I think. They're going to buy solar at six cents a kilowatt hour. Is that It's
0: cal- There's a lot of solar going on. The prices have been falling. Prices it's have been far- falling.
1: And, and a really interesting thing. So as most of us know, China has uh, basically subsidized the cost of solar globally because of dumping – their solar equipment globally, and that means manufacturers everywhere are unhappy. However, installers are thrilled. So in the EU recently, the manufacturers were trying to get a tariff on the dumped Chinese solar equipment, and the labor was saying, don't do that because this is now a booming business. And so... Uh, I think the profit and loss of solar is that the more solar there is, the less coal we need, the less nucle- the less everything else we need. So it becomes uh, positive for the society. I-, I don't, I don't understand your question. Maybe.
0: Well, you know what, we need to wrap it up. Perhaps you guys can follow up offline because okay. we're, we're, we're out of time. Okay, sorry. The, uh, sorry about that. The, uh, just real quickly as we end here, how do you manage your own personal carbon footprint? What are you doing to reduce your uh, – Amy Larkin, then John
1: Hoffmeister. Well, I live in New York City, so it's much easier to manage my carbon footprint because you can walk, take a bus or a subway everywhere. There's no vehicles needed. Occasional taxi is about it. However, I fly everywhere. So, my carbon footprint is largely terrible because of airplane travel. The other thing that I do personally is that in my home, the routers, the every system is off. I mean, if no one's home, Everything is off. You there are are no vampires. little red lights. There's no vampire electricity in that household. No vampires in your house. John Hoffmeister, how do you manage your carbon
0: footprint?
3: Well, I'm not doing very well because, like Amy, I travel all the time. <clears throat> and so I am on an airplane. I'm not on a corporate jet, but I am on an airplane. Uh, I would say that we, we keep our thermostat at home, 75 degrees. It's pretty uncomfortable for me. My wife freezes at 72, so... <laughs> So, uh, I've compromised it's, with her at 75, which in Houston, Texas is pretty high. Houston has a habit of keeping shawls on hand in restaurants for people to wrap around themselves because it's so cold right. in the restaurants in Houston. I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's true. That's true in Hong and, Kong. And too. so I, I would say that, uh, you know, we, we, we don't, uh, we don't do a very good job.
0: We have to end it there. Our thanks to John Hoffmeister, CEO of Citizens for Affordable Energy, former president of Shell Oil, and Amy Larkin, author of Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for listening to Climate One. You can follow this program uh, in iTunes, podcast of this, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at Climate One. Thanks for coming.